This is the Great Human Chronicle. I am Anvik. Today's story is like an enneagram chart because there are exactly nine parts. One, allegory. Frogs are poisonous. Don't kiss them. Two, fall. Nineteenth of May, fifteen thirty-six, England. We don't know much about that day. But we know that Anne Boleyn was up for mass at dawn. She'd received her sacrament, her last sacrament. She had breakfast around seven, and at eight she sent for the constable, who told her that the time for her execution was near. He asked her to get ready, and Anne informed him that she was. She had been ready for a few days now. We don't know what Anne did for the next few hours. Maybe she looked out at the sky, whose color we do not know, and thus we cannot wax poetically about. Maybe she read her copy of the Bible, something we know that she found comfort in. Maybe she thought about her mortality, or politics, or other things that noble women were not expected to think about, but she did. Maybe she thought about King Henry VIII and how quickly things had happened. A little over two weeks ago. and was still by his side she was still queen of england a title she had received with so much difficulty and lost so easily 3 summary best known by its german variant the frog prince is a folk tale about a young princess who agrees to marry a frog in return for his help the young girl doesn't take the marital advances of the amphibian all that seriously because you know he is a frog And she pays the price for not spending enough time reading interspecies fan fiction at the age of thirteen on Tumblr, when the frog comes back and reminds her of her promise. And when she is still resistant to the idea of marrying a toad, the frog appeals to the good conscience of her father, the king. The couple then have to fulfill a certain set of requirements without the knowledge of the girl. And once they do so, the frog turns into a prince so handsome that he could be played by a cis white dude. in one of those generic netflix romcoms 4 mes on sen for as long as we felt love we have told stories about it from parables and songs to cinema and strings of 280 characters all put together to describe an emotion so primal so ordinary so special that it can fail language that it can leave you speechless for as long as we felt love though we have also attempted to ignore it we've built institutions and structures both literal and metaphorical to account and discount for its influence love is special love is brittle love can't be temporary and one of the hallmarks of our human species is our obsession with permanence therefore It should come as no surprise to anyone that in our attempt to make love permanent we ignored it altogether we created an institution that had nothing to do with love we created marriage and in turn our stories about love became stories about marriage and our stories about marriage became nothing to do with love 5 rise In order to marry Anne, Henry VIII changed the course of world history forever. 
After the Pope refused to annul his first marriage, Henry broke away from the authority of the Roman Catholic Church, making himself the head of Church of England. And yet, three years after Henry successfully annulled his first marriage and made Anne history's most famous homebreaker, she was waiting to be beheaded. What had gone wrong? Well, it was simple. Anne had failed to give Henry what Henry wanted most. A son. She had given birth to a daughter, Elizabeth, three months after she became queen. But even then, all but one astronomer had predicted that a son would be born. And this was a huge blow for the royal couple. Henry had annulled his first marriage on the basis that his first marriage had lost favour with God. And therefore, for Anne and Henry's controversial union to be accepted, she had to give birth to her son. Unfortunately, she couldn't. And after her next two pregnancies ended in stillborns, Anne's enemies began to move. They lodged accusation after accusation, explaining why she had failed to give birth to a boy child. Eventually, the couple stuck and on the 15th of May 1536, Anne Boleyn was sentenced to death for adultery, incest and high treason. Love can be temporary and Henry's love for Anne had run out. 6. The Frog Prince is not about love The Frog Prince isn't about love. Love is merely the reward, the prize the princess gets for putting up with the demands of the frog. The light at the end of the tunnel that the reader sees after they let the king force his daughter to listen to a four-legged amphibian, a means to justify the action. For centuries, people have told the frog prince tale in different ways in different parts of the world. Sometimes it was about the daughter of a merchant, or the daughter of a baker, a diplomat, or a rice-beater if you were in Sri Lanka, who meets a frog or a toad or snake or mouse, who makes a promise herself to them for help to get back a ball or water or some other tiny little thing. At the end of the story, the frog or mouse or snake would then become the prince of your dreams as long as you fulfill a certain set of criteria. But this criteria to get to that would also change depending on where you were and when you were there. It could be as simple as a couple sleeping together once, like in the Hungarian versions of the tale, or it could be more extreme like in Scotland, where the princess has to decapitate the frog. Sometimes. It's more elaborate, like in Disney's version of the tale, and sometimes it's as simple as just a kiss. Regardless, the climax of the tale always reinforces the most important feature of the tale, that the Frog Prince is not a tale about love. It's a tale about promises. There is the promise of the female protagonist of the frog, of course, but there are other promises involved as well. There is the unwanted promise that the frog makes to the witch or wizard that turned him into a frog. There is the vow of allegiance that the prince's subordinate Henry makes to the prince. And of course, at the end of the tale, there is the promise to love till death do them apart. And it is that last promise that is key. Because hidden between the illusion of love is a different, more implicit promise. There is an implied promise that the princess makes. The promise to listen to her father even if it's against her wishes. And this point is important to note. The Brothers Grimm wrote their tales for a very specific group of people. 
They revised and altered their stories several times across the seven editions of the book and changed numerous plot points in the story. But every single time, it was the girl's father who told her to do what the frog said. Even in versions of the tale written by other folklorists around this time, the protagonist was always subjected to the wishes of an authoritative figure. And if you think about it, it checks out. These tales were written for the German bourgeoisie, a section of society in which young girls were taught that even they could find their prince. All they have to do is to obey the male members of their family. Even if your new husband is much older to you, looks ugly and acts despicably, just listen to your parents. They know what's best. 7. Finitude To this day, most historians believe that Anne was innocent. But in the 1500s, that did not matter. Henry had made up his mind. He was already seeing another woman, who he would marry a fortnight after Anne's execution. If he could get rid of one queen, he knew he could get rid of another. On the 19th of May, Anne walked onto that black scaffold in her carefully curated grey and crimson outfit. Crimson was the colour of martyrs, and Anne was going to do her very best to make sure she was remembered as one. As she walked up, she was calm, unusually calm for someone who was about to die. Unusuality, though, was a trait that underscored Anne Boleyn's life. She was unusually calm, unusually educated, unusually sophisticated and unusually beautiful. She gave a speech and then asked for her executioner. The executioner stepped forward and asked for her forgiveness, which was obligatory and she gave willingly. She then knelt in front of a crowd that was in tears because of her speech and asked for time to pray. While she was praying though, she kept turning back to make sure the executioner didn't kill her halfway through. The executioner reassured her, he would wait until she was ready. He wasn't a bad man. He was just the middleman. Anne then signaled that she was ready and the executioner walked towards her with his axe. He opened his shoes to not disturb her prayer and then in a single stroke Anne Boleyn's life came to an end. 8. The Current State of the Frog Prince my favourite thing about stories, though, is that as we evolve, so do they. Today, there are novels, movies, toys, plays, comics and so much more media about the antics of a frog and a princess that it almost feels like if there is a variant you can imagine, it probably exists. What is missing from most of the modern versions of the tale, though, is that authoritative figure. There are parents in today's tales, but the people making decisions are our lead characters. In Alex Perenzi's A Frog Prince, for example, when the frog realizes that the princess doesn't care for him, instead of trying to get her father to force her, he just decides to leave the princess and find someone who values him for himself. It is these features of fairy tales that makes me come back to them. Fairy tales are shared culture. They might be about fairies and goblins and evil stepmothers, but at the end of the day, they're really just about us. 9. Epilogue In many ways, Anne's life was singular. Depending on who you ask, 
She was either the greatest Tudor queen ever or the whore who destroyed the sanctity of the English royalty. She was the woman because of whom people across England had to choose between their faith and their country. Her life was like most women of her time. It wasn't hers. It belonged to other people. She did what she was told and when she was no use anymore, she was discarded. At the bottom of a page in her copy of the Bible, Anne wrote a single sentence for future readers to read. It read, Remember me when you do pray. That hope does lead from day to day. Remember me when you do pray. That hope does lead from day to day. For the last 200 years, every year on the 19th of May, flowers show up where Anne Pullen is buried. We do not know where these flowers come from, and there are rumors that the flowers are paid for by the Boleyn family due to some clause in some will somewhere, but we do not know for sure. What we do know is that history answered Anne's plea to be remembered. Elizabeth went on to rule England for four decades, making her one of the longest-serving monarchs in English history and only the second woman to rule England. Before that though, Henry was succeeded by his son Edward, who ruled for just six contentious years in which England fought multiple wars. One of these was the rough wooing, fought between Scotland and England due to the English Reformation that started because of Anne and Henry. During this war, a book was written in 1548 known as The Complaint of Scotland. It was a book of propaganda written to unify the people of Scotland. It contained anecdotes, stories and songs from Scottish culture. And one such song had excerpts from a story we know today as The Well of the World's End. The story revolves around a young girl who is asked by her devilish stepmother to go and fetch water from the well at the end of the world. On her way, the girl realizes that she will need help from a frog who helps her on the condition that she will fall in love with it. This tale traveled to different parts of Europe. And while it wasn't the first of its kind, it was important. Because in 1810, two brothers in Germany, Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm, used this tale as a reference for their own story about a princess and a frog. One that, like the story of Anne Boleyn, is about love, but really isn't. Hey, I hope you liked that. I'm going to keep this very, very quick because it's 5.50 in the morning and I'm very, very, very tired. The only thing I need you to do. So Spotify has just started rating and reviewing podcasts or rather allowing other people to rate and review podcasts. So, and I know that 60 to 70% of you all listen to it on the Spotify app. So please, please, please go to the Spotify app right now as you're listening to this and just rate and review the podcast. Just rate it. Leave it five stars on it, you know. If you're going to reach this part of the podcast, you might as well leave five stars. Though, if you want to leave a one, a two, a three, a four, that's also fine. I'd appreciate any feedback. Feedback. Wow, I can't speak anymore. Uh, I'm going to go uh, rate and review the podcast, please. It takes less than a minute and it means so, so, so much. And it also helps so much because it's such a new feature on Spotify that like, if we can collect a few ratings on the app itself, it can really boost the podcast. So please, please, please. Less than a minute. As you're listening to this, you can go ahead and do it. All right. That's all I have to ask for. Just that one thing. Just the one thing. Less than a minute. 
and it helps so so much uh season two is back baby we're back and uh, hopefully for the next 13 odd episodes we're going to look at stories that we all love that's all uh i'm not going to get you to do anything else this episode is written, researched, produced, directed by me, Anvik Singh. The music in this episode is by John Albert, Loving Caliber, Megan Watford, and Jacob Albion. Thank you so much for your time, your energy, and most importantly, your attention. I'll see you in two weeks.